Hey, it's Bradley Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast. Wow, Ryan's seat is comfortable. A little lumpy here. Wait a second, what's this? It's stuffed with cash. This index fund business is a lie. He keeps all the money in his mattress. Only kidding, only kidding. I'm actually recording from my home on Long Island, and as you can hear, I avoided the accent, mostly. I interview guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the singular goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves in and out of the exam room. So in the next few weeks, I'll be interviewing guests to discuss issues like how to help our patients work through decision-making, what our leaders should do to decrease physician burnout on a systems level, the Venn diagram, that is medicine, marriage, and money, being an American physician practicing abroad, and ethically utilizing the power of placebo. So let's start the show. I've been considering investing in real estate for a while, but I'm not really motivated enough or interested enough to move forward. My wife and I put some money in a fund of funds, but with all the fees, there's not much money being made. Actually, I don't think there's any money being made yet. My wife and I were recently at a vacation destination driving distance from our home and got to thinking, could we get a vacation home here? So I got to thinking, could we make money from a vacation home here? I started reading books, actually listening to books, and listening to podcasts about short-term rentals, so I decided to have the queen of short-term rentals on the show to answer our questions. Come on, isn't it more fun to look at vacation homes than apartment buildings? Avery Carl was named one of Wall Street Journal's Top 100 and Newsweek's Top 500 Agents in 2020. She and her team at the Short Term Shop focus exclusively on vacation rental and short-term rental clients, having closed well over a billion dollars in real estate sales. Avery has sold over $300 million in short-term rental vacation rentals since 2017. An investor herself with a portfolio of over 100 doors, Avery specializes in connecting investors with short-term rentals with the highest ROI potential and then training them to manage their short-term rentals from their smartphones from anywhere in the world. Talk about a four-hour work week. She is author of the book Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth and host of the Short-Term Show podcast. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Avery Carl, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I was thinking that short-term rentals seem like a good way for physicians to make a foray into the real estate game, right? Like a lot of physicians are talking about syndications and I don't know how many people can get excited about apartment buildings. But if you were to start off with your own vacation home, where do you like to go on vacation? How would you like to buy a house there without having to pay for it? Do short-term rentals, learn that actually this could be a way to generate revenue and then it can be an iterative process from there, right? Get your second one, get your third one. But you start out with just your own vacation home, right? Easy way to do it. Might not be the most profitable or the most profitable location, but again, a good start that you can get excited about. Is that a reasonable model? Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely some strategy to choosing the right market to make it the most profitable while it can still be 
something fun for you. So the regional drivable vacation markets, the tourism dependent markets typically are the ones that perform the best that have the highest cash on cash return because they are both accessible and affordable. So, you know, you're not buying in Hawaii where it's really expensive and it's really hard to get there and people have to save up all year to go. But, you know, if you're like down here in the South, like me, Panama city beach, everybody that goes to Panama city in the summer, which is millions and millions of people are driving in. Or if you're like up where you are in New York, maybe it's the Poconos places like that are typically the best in terms of vacation homes and in terms of having the highest cash on cash return. So there's definitely a way to, to do it all, so to speak. Sorry, cash on cash return. Not all of our listeners might know what that means. What do you mean by that? Okay. So cash on cash return explained in a really easy way is the amount of money that you put down versus the amount of money in your bank account at the end of the year after all of your expenses are paid on the property. So you want to look for that number to be at least 15%. 15%. Okay. So as an example, let's say I buy a, for a round number, I live in New York mm -hmm. for a vacation home, million dollar home, right? So I put down a 200,000 down payment. So you're saying I should be looking for 30,000 a year income from that $200,000 down payment? Yeah, at a minimum. At a minimum? Yeah. 15% per year at a minimum. You know, market returns on average, the last few years notwithstanding, right? This can't last forever. We're talking about 7 or 8% and you're talking about 15% plus, and that's just cash flow. That's not even including the equity in the house. Right, right. That's just cash flow. And there are some cool ways to finance short-term rentals that can actually raise your cash on cash return even higher. The first one is a conventional loan. It is a 10% down vacation home loan. That's a really good way to get, you know, you're cutting that down payment in half. So instead of 200,000, you're putting 100,000. And there's a few rules regarding that. So it does have to be a vacation home, which means you have to stay in it for two weeks out of the year, but you are allowed to rent it out for a profit for the rest of the 50 weeks of the year. A few other things is that you have to manage it yourself. You can't put a contract on it, like a lease or a property management contract, which takes control away from you, which would keep it from being a vacation home. So that's why underwriting says that. So that's what a lot of people do. And then there's also, if you don't meet those requirements. Like there's no way you're going to be able to spend two weeks there. We have what are called DSCR loans. So I actually started my own mortgage company so that we could offer this kind of stuff, but a DSCR loan, you're not qualified based on your own income and your debt, et cetera. It works kind of like a commercial loan and you're qualified based on what the property will make on a one-to-one -one ratio with the mortgage payment. So if your mortgage payment is going to be 2,500 bucks a month, all we have to do is show that the property is going to make 2,500 bucks a month, which of course it is. Otherwise you wouldn't be buying it. That one you can buy right in an LLC. So if you get a conventional loan, you have to buy that in your personal name, which I know physicians with malpractice insurance and things like that and liability, maybe you don't want it in your personal name. You don't want people to know what you own. So it might be best to start out with an LLC, which means a DSCR loan would be a way to go. And we can do those for 15% down. So again, it's still less than a traditional 20% down payment on like an apartment building or something. It seems like they'd be higher risk. So they're going to command higher interest rates, right? Like if you're not relying on your own net worth and your own income, it's going to be higher risk for the bank. Right. So they're in the low fours right now. Like I believe I saw 4.3 today. So it's still pretty good in the grand scheme of historical interest rates. Got it. But as opposed to... I think three or maybe yeah, three change that we're seeing right now for a 20% down payment on a second home. 
Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Ultimately, that becomes all about the math, right? Right. You put down a higher down payment, you're going to have a lower cash on cash return, but your profit margin might end up being great. You know, like it just depends how the math works out in your particular situation. Yeah. It just depends on what your goals are. So some people, their goal is to put the least amount, you know, they want to keep their cash in their pocket. So they want to put the least amount down. I'm at the point in my investing career, I have 102 doors. I'd rather just put down the 20%. So the cash flow is higher. But when I started, I was much more concerned with keeping more cash in my pocket. So I would always do the lowest down payment possible. So if you get to the point where you're on your third, fourth, fifth, sixth properties, and you want to have as much cash as possible to continue the process, then you're going to want that down payment to be as low as possible. Okay. So one thing that you mentioned was you want it to be drivable. So that's something that we should be thinking about with our first vacation home. It's something that we should be driving to, not flying to, or at least someone could be driving to. Maybe not we would be driving to. Right. So you want to buy in a market where the majority of the tourists that visit that market are driving in. And the reason for that, so if you look at the past, we'll call it the past two recessions, and I don't even know if I would call COVID a recession, it's certainly something, an event. But the reason that I stick with the regional drivable markets is because they're accessible and affordable. So in 2008, when it was a financial crisis and nobody had any disposable income and everybody's going broke and bankrupt and whatever, you know, they couldn't afford to take the mountain trip to Aspen that year, but they could drive to the Poconos or if they're in the South, they could drive to the Smokies or if they're in Texas, they can drive to Broken Bow. And that's what people did. Then if you look at last year, it wasn't a financial thing so much just as people didn't want to get sick. So they didn't want to go to big metro areas and they didn't want to get on planes and be in enclosed spaces with other people breathing on each other and get sick, but they were dying to get out of their houses. So they were driving to these same places instead of flying on big vacations. So the affordability and the accessibility really helped to keep those types of markets insulated from big economic events and recessions. So nothing's recession proof, obviously, but it definitely makes a difference. So ultimately people go on vacation, no matter what. In times of economic hardship, you're going to have people that still have a bunch of money, but maybe less so. They can't go on super fancy vacations, go on a local vacation. And when people are doing, when the economy is really humming and everyone's doing well, now you've got maybe some lower income people that are able to take vacations that they otherwise wouldn't take. They're still not going to spend a ton of money. So then they're going to fill the gaps where those other people were flying are then going locally. Right. Excellent. Okay. Something to think about. What else are we thinking about when we're buying our first vacation home other than like, I love this spot? Regulations are the most important thing. Like before you even think about calling a loan officer, calling a real estate agent, check the local regulations because a lot of places you think, oh, well, this will be great. I can just buy this awesome house and put it on Airbnb. But a lot of places don't allow short-term rentals or they have a certain permitting process where they only allow X amount of licenses at a time. So like Breckenridge is a really good example of that. I would die to buy something in Breckenridge, but the problem is they only allow a certain number of short-term rental permits. And if there aren't any left, you're just sitting there with at least a million dollar property waiting to be allowed to do it. So you don't want to get yourself in a situation like that. So make sure that you are researching the short-term rental laws in an area. And the way that you do that is you just call the City, it's called different things in different areas, but city or county planning department or codes department or zoning department, it'll have one of those words in there. And if you call the wrong one, they'll just tell you who you need to call. This might be asking too much, like you'd have to have your finger on the pulse of the entire country. 
But are there any areas right now that are at higher risk of having their short-term rental laws changed? Like anywhere that your clients are investing where you're saying, listen, I'm hearing murmurs of this. Yeah, yeah. So that typically happens more in metro markets than in those regional drivable vacation markets. So the two things that contribute to anti-short-term rental regulations are hotel presence and primary homeowners. So I used to live in Nashville and I had a short-term shop office in Nashville for a little while and we closed it down. I almost said we deleted it. (laughs) I've been on the computer too long. We deleted it because of the law. So what happens is in a metro market up until about 10 years ago, all the tourists coming to these types of markets were staying in hotels. Only as of the past 10, 15 years have short-term rentals really started taking market share away from hotels in these types of markets. So that's one thing. The other thing is that Nashville or any insert metro market here has a lot of industry and a lot of jobs outside of tourism. So a lot of primary homeowners. And so what happens is people are raising their kids on what was previously, you know, a quiet street in a quiet neighborhood. And then investors come in, start opening Airbnbs in the neighborhood. There's parties, things like that. Nashville's notorious for bachelorette parties. And, you know, they have penis balloons and all that, you know, in front of the two-year-olds. And then that becomes a problem. And then here it is on the city council docket. So it's primary homeowners and hotel presence. It's mostly metro markets, but there are some like vacation markets that are kind of like that. But you want to look for a market where it's been the normal thing for people to rent a single family home or a condo on an overnight basis rather than a hotel since before Airbnb existed. So I'm sitting in Destin, Florida right now. My grandmother has owned a vacation home that's been rented in Destin, Florida since 1969. She has been coming and renting vacation homes since the 40s. There were actually vacation rentals here on the beach before there's electricity. So you have short-term rental in your blood. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you want to look for a market like that where there aren't really any hotels here. There's a few, but There's never really been hotels. All of the tourists are coming to stay in beach houses, like, you know, up there, like Fire Island and stuff. People are staying in beach houses. They're not going out and staying in hotels. So you want to look for a market like that, where it's been the normal thing to rent. If it's a mountain market cabin or beach market, they're renting condos on the beach or beach houses rather than hotels. Interesting. You mentioned Fire Island because that's where my wife and I are considering. Because you go to the (laughs) Hamptons and the houses that are anywhere walkable from the beach are $5 million, $8 million, but Fire Island is a bit more egalitarian where everyone's got a small plot. There are beach cottages. It's a really nice, you don't have to sit in traffic. You're taking a ferry to get there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. There's no cars on Fire Island, right? No, there are no cars. There are construction vehicles in the off season only. You need special permits. Like it's a different kind of place. So, yeah. And it's drivable. You can't fly there. You're not flying into (laughs) Yeah. no helicopter pads like they do have in the Hamptons. But none of my listeners don't look there. there. (laughs) It's terrible. Don't don't bother. Regulations are bad. Awful. Yeah. But we've been actually learning a lot about the regulations. They're different within Fire Island. Each town has its own particular regulations. Like this one place, Ocean Beach, you can rent for a minimum of a week. So short-term rentals, they don't want any partiers who are just coming in for the weekends. They want people that are going to be staying for an entire week. So that's how they cut down on younger people who don't have the money for an entire week, aren't going to their family. So interesting way that they regulate. So I thought it was interesting that sometimes I cover medical topics and you're the first person to ever say penis balloon on the podcast, even though we do cover urology sometimes. (laughs) That's a first here. Okay. So now we've identified the region that we want to go. It's a place that we know that we can drive so we can check the place out because we're really not ready to buy a place where it's going to be a long distance rental. We still want it to be our drivable vacation home. So the specific property. How do I know 
what I'm looking at. How do I know if the rental income is going to work out? So that's a very, very good question. And I know for a bunch of doctors and people in the field of science and medicine that this is going to sound crazy, but rental history means almost nothing. It is what one random property manager has been able to do with one random property. It is not indicative of future performance. What you want to look at is market-wide data on the size property that you're thinking of about a number of bedrooms. So there are a few places you can get that. AirDNA is one of them. You want to get them from as many places as possible. You want as many data points as possible. AirDNA specializes in measuring the performance of short-term rentals that are posted on Airbnb and VRBO. And it'll show you the gross occupancy rate, or sorry, the average occupancy rate, average gross annual income, and average price per night of the size property that you're looking at. Their data is not perfect, but it's pretty good. And you want to stick to the market-wide data. It does have a function where you can put in the address of a property and it will tell you what it should make. That is wildly off. It really just shrinks the data sample from this big to this big. So any outlier will completely screw that up. So market-wide data only. And some other places you can get that are Rabu, R-A-B-B. There is a tool called Price Labs that you typically won't need until you actually buy something because it will dynamically price your property to where you're getting the highest price per night. But that has a function within it called the market dashboards where you can get some really good data on the market that you're looking at as well. And then we use all of that data in conjunction with something that we at the short-term shop call the enemy method. So there are things that data can't tell you, certain intangibles about why the data says what it says. So we use the enemy method to kind of figure that out. So what you do is you go on Airbnb or VRBO, wherever you're planning to post your property, zoom in on the map, on the neighborhood that you're looking to buy in and check out your enemies or your neighbor's They're technically your neighbors, but enemy method is more fun to say than the neighbor method. Competition. You're looking at your competition. So what you're saying is with like AirDNA, you're going to have such a large data set that there are going to be some like maybe some super fancy homes, or maybe that someone lives there, they don't rent it out, or they don't rent it out often. You're going to have some outliers that are really going to skew the data. So what you're looking for is ultimately comps. Exactly. And so, yeah, you're looking at, you know, you're making sure you want an average four bedroom. And then the four bedroom next door to you has terrible pictures and the host never responds. So they're way back in the search results. Nobody ever sees them. Nobody ever books it. So that's dragging it down. Conversely, if you've got somebody next door to you who the property comes with a private jet and a private chef and a chauffeur and all this stuff, well, they're going to be getting a lot more than you. So you need to take that into account. Basically, you're looking for the outliers in the data and making sure they're not around you and figuring out what you should be making that way. But yeah, looking for comps pretty much. Anything within the home itself that you're like red flag or like definitely go for something like this. If we're looking for return on investment, because what we're going to be looking for, right, is what we want in a home, which might not be what the market wants in a home. So, you know, when we're looking for specific qualities and let's just stick with the beach destination rather than like a mountain destination, just so we're a little consistent because of Fire Island. So what qualities are we looking for? In a a house, in the property itself? Yeah. What do people want? Basically, I mean, it's not that difficult. It's what I stay here. Yes, I would. So let's pursue this further. But you want to make sure that you're looking at things that are what the tourists in the market have come to expect and what their expectation is. So, you know, if you're looking at a mountain market and their expectation is cabins or as cabiny as possible, you don't want to go buy a brick ranch home because it's not going to rent as well. And I see that a lot in some of my offices where people will say, oh man, what about this? And it's just like a early nineties, just 
brick house. And they're like, it's so much cheaper. The cash on cash return will be amazing. The returns will be great. It's so much cheaper than all the cabins. We're like, well, it's cheaper because it's not desirable is why. Make sure that you're just sticking with what the norm for the market is. And then renovations. So let's say you find that brick house that you feel like is really undervalued, but you can bring something to the table through renovations. What are we looking for with high return on investment renovations versus low return on investment renovations? Being able to add an extra bedroom is always going to be a high return. Depending on what finishes you choose, you can be over improving or not. So say you're going to do a kitchen renovation, it's just like super dated. As long as you get like an updated looking granite, you don't have to go with like the $15,000 granite. The $3,000 granite will work just fine as long as it's not dated looking. People get caught up in being luxury and being inexperienced, and that's all great. If you're spending an extra 40, 50,000 on finishes that guests aren't really going to know the difference and what it is, then it's just a vanity project. It's not actually adding any value to the property in terms of price per night. And you probably want to keep it simple, right? Like just your tastes, you want to keep colors pretty bland and not such exciting stuff in there. That's quirky. You don't want to have the Star Wars beach house because you're a big Star Wars fan. You're really going to be narrowing who ends up renting your place. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that does work really well in Orlando outside of Disney market, the themed houses, like there's frozen houses, there's a star Wars house. There's people theme their houses based around different Disney movies because that's expected for that market. You don't want to do that just at a regular beach. Yeah. We're not going to do that in Breckenridge or the Poconos. Yeah. Okay. So before you'd mentioned a vacation home versus depending on which mortgage you do versus a rental property. And I think you said you need to stay in the house at least 14 days for it to be considered a vacation home. How does that work with deducting expenses? My understanding that if you stay in it for more than 14 days, it is not an investment property. It is a vacation home. And you can't, like, if you're going to renovate it, you can't deduct the expenses of the renovations. Whereas if you're staying at fewer than 14 days, then you can. Well, then don't stay longer than 14 days. And then you meet both criteria. So 14 days on the nose. (laughs) Yeah. So if you're going to use that loan, it is like a science to make sure that you're meeting all the qualifications for everything that you're trying to do. Okay. That's correct though. Like more than 14 days and you can't tell the IRS that it's an investment property. Okay. Let's discuss property management because, well, earlier you said that for a particular type of loan, you can't, you have to manage it yourself. The problem is everybody's busy. We like to think we're busier than everyone else. So start with that. So physicians, very busy. And for us, actually, it's not even a busy thing. It just financially, it makes more sense to do what we do as physicians to earn our income rather than managing properties to earn our income. So we're going to want to outsource that to someone else, especially at the beginning. So how do we do that? Like, how do we find the right property manager? Or do we just put it up on VRBO and Airbnb and hire a handyman and a cleaning company ourselves? What do you recommend we do? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually have lots, I would say, a lot of physician clients. And because a lot of them are trying to also get the tax benefits of being a real estate professional, which means you have to put in a hundred hours over the course of the year on real estate, which is really difficult to do when you have a real full-time job like that for management. I do not recommend traditional short-term rental property management at all. And I will preface this with So I have 102 doors. Eight of them are short-term rentals. The rest are long-terms. All of my long-terms are with a property manager. That makes a lot of sense because they're having to like show the property and do credit checks on people and do background checks on people and, you know, deal with all this stuff. Whereas short-terms, like they're in, they're out. 
there's no background checks and all that stuff. So managing a short term is significantly easier because it's three apps on your phone. Everything's streamlined. The way technology is now, even a really, really busy professional can self-manage just because like, so your property management software, you can set up your auto responses to say anything and everything to where you are never really going to have to respond to a guest unless they ask you something really specific. Hey, where's your spatula? And in which case, if you're in surgery, that's not important and you can get to that later. So any of the major FAQs is really just handled through automation. Most of the traditional property management companies, the average split for short-term rental property management is 25% of your gross income. And to give some perspective on that, if I had paid a property manager 25% this year on my short terms, I would have paid them $200,000. So for me, I would rather put that 200 on another million dollar property, whether that is a short-term rental or an apartment building that's for long-term or what have you. So the happy medium there is offshore VAs. So I have four of them that are all full-time with me and they all do, you know, different things. Cause I've got a bunch of different businesses going on, but the best way to do it is offshore VAs because you just teach them how to run the systems. And then they're there to answer those questions. And it is not $200,000 a year. And it's not even, uh, depending on which company you go with and where the VAs are sourced from. I mean, it's very, very affordable. So that would be my recommendation. So then do you list on Airbnb and VRBO? Airbnb and VRBO, there are a few other ones you can use, but we stay so booked on those two that we just don't complicate our lives by adding more. How much do they take? Airbnb is 3% and VRBO is, I think they take about, it's either five or eight. They just changed it up. But so we are about 85% booked on Airbnb and only about 15% on VRBO. Airbnb is like easy 3%. You don't really even notice. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was under the impression that it was significantly more. Okay. So you probably need a handyman local, like someone that will be able to physically get there in case something breaks, in case there is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So the people that you'll need to start with are your cleaner, who is the most important and your handyman, who is second most important. You actually want to have two or three handymen, which you'll be able to source like as you go, because if something happens that needs addressed and your favorite handyman is busy or can't get there for 48 hours, then you just move down your list to the next one and see whoever can get out there the fastest. Got it. Got it. Okay. We've got our property. We've renovated it, added a room. We're starting to rent it out. We've got our team. What are some issues that we should expect to encounter now that we're humming? Now that you're up and running, there are most guests, like 90% of guests are going to be great. They're not going to ask any questions. Uh, They might ask one or two. They're in, they're out. They don't tear the house up. No problem. Where's the Wi-Fi password? Yeah, <laughs> that's about it. And then 10% will be needy, but not bad. And every now and then you'll get just a bad one. That's like a discount looker somebody who goes to the steakhouse and eats the entire steak and then asks for a discount because they didn't like the way it was cooked. But you don't run into that much, but there are a, a few ways that you can try to get upstream of those kinds of people to where, because that's those kinds of people are going to be the ones that give you bad reviews. So the super needy people, the people that are looking for a discount, and then there's just like some general carrying that goes on. So like if somebody there, if their first question to you is what thread count are your sheets? This person is going to be high maintenance and needy because they're looking for like really nice sheets. So you say, Oh, they're Jersey net from target. I paid 15 bucks. And then they'll be like, okay, never mind, And go find somewhere else to stay. So you just avoided 
a potential situation because you just told them what they don't want to hear. So by telling a guest that's asking a question that throws up a red flag, the answer that they're looking for. We had one one time that said, it's a two bedroom house. And they said, do you have room for six dually trucks in your driveway? And we were like, I don't know what a dually truck is. Yeah, you do. Have you ever seen Yellowstone? Have you ever watched Yellowstone? Those the trucks, they're just like a regular truck, but in the back, instead of just having two wheels, they have four, they have two on each side. They're for like towing horse trailers. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they said, you have room for six dually trucks. We're in town for the, I think it was the rod run, the hot rod run. And we don't want to have to all have to like, last time we couldn't fit them all in the driveway and we had to sleep in our cars, other places. And I'm like, this is a one bedroom with a loft and they need to park six trucks. <laughs> so we were like, no, we don't have enough room. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. We don't have enough room for that. And then they go find somewhere else because they were clearly there to party Yeah, if they're trying to fit that many people. So you can learn to ask questions and you can get rid of people based on how they, because the, the partiers will tell on themselves. Yeah. Oh, good to know. Good to know. All right. Any other issues with the property itself? So I see a lot of hosts. So with the smart home tools, yes, you want smart home tools, but there are certain ones you want and certain ones you want to stay away from. Everybody wants to get a Nest thermostat, which is great. I have those in the house that I live in, but not in the short-term rentals because they can be difficult to figure out. And then that's something that you're going to get a hundred questions about every time somebody has never seen one before. So we use a Honeywell T9 because it does the exact same thing. Looks as cool as the Nest, but it's easier to work. So we don't get questions on it. So when you're doing the smart home stuff, yes, you want the thing that's going to be easy for you to make sure you can do what you need to do, ring doorbell cameras, but you want it to be the easiest. And we say the thing with the least amount of buttons, uh, because the less buttons there are, the less chances there are for them to need something from you, from you or not be able to figure it out. So uh, smart home tools, keep those simple. And then as far as like physical or material defects of the house, and not the technology within the house. It depends on the market. I have five properties in the Smoky Mountains. Wells are a big thing there. Like a lot of the properties are on wells. And when a well filter starts to get dirty, the water pressure starts to get low in the house. And then the guests will say, hey, the water pressure is low. And then I know that means, oh, I need to call handyman, send them out to, to change the water filter. It just depends on the market, what fun thing you get to deal with. Okay. So now we we're in love with this whole short-term rental thing because we've either bought a vacation home that even if we didn't have a big cash on cash return, we've got our vacation home. Someone else is paying for either all of it or most of it, which is awesome. So we want to do this again. What do we do? If we have a beach house, do we get something in the same market? Cause we already know what we're doing, or we've got a beach house. Now we're going to go for a lake house or a mountain house to for a little more variety or go right for investment properties that we're never going to see and we're never going to touch? Well, there's no wrong answer to that. So it's very, very easy when you have a system already built in a market to just add properties to that system. That's going to be the easiest if we're not, you know, if you don't, money is not an object. If you want more properties faster for the least amount of money down, so you can have one of those 10% down vacation home loans per market. So you can do one in Fire Island and one 10% in the Poconos and one 10% in Panama City Beach and one 10% in Park City, Utah. So people that are trying to scale the fastest for the least amount of money will typically do it that way. Yes, it is a pain to set up the same system in a bunch of different markets rather than just add properties to the one you have running. But, and then a lot of people, it's fun. Like I own apartment buildings in the Midwest and they do really well, but it's certainly not fun to shop for them. It's just like, okay, cool. Another apartment building in Nebraska, fun times. 
but it's fun shopping for uh, vacation homes. And I think that people end up choosing doing one in each market just because it's fun to, to try a new market. Like, Oh, I'm going to buy a ski in a ski town this time. And now I'm going to look at cabins instead of each houses. And it's just fun to do. So I think a lot of people just jump markets because it's fun to do that. What markets right now are really the hottest for short-term rentals? I mean, you mentioned, you know, the drivable ones, but like specifically, what should we be cruising on Zillow to start looking at properties tonight? So you want to hit my website, the shorttermshop.com. Excellent place for a plug. <laughs> yes, because we have offices in 10 markets right now. We're actually waiting to get two of them up on the website. So we're just know that and I'll list them off in a second. All of those are going to be the highest cash on cash return, the safest regulations of anywhere in the country, or otherwise we wouldn't open an office there. The hottest one that is getting the most attention is the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. It is crazy competitive to get a property there right now. We saw two this week that had 50 offers each. So I think a lot of people get really fixated on the Smokies because like every investor and their mom, like my dachshund sitting under my chairs talking about the Smokies and they do have like really great returns, but I think people are getting so fixated on that, that they're not realizing or not paying attention to all these other good deals that are just like floating down the river under their noses because they're so focused on the Smokies. Yeah. In your Facebook group, I keep seeing it over and over and over. Yeah. Is that at risk for supply outpacing demand? Could it end up in a bubble? Unfortunately, no, I don't think so. We had a really, really crazy bad wildfire in 2016, the Smokies, and it burnt down like 35% of the cabins. Wow. And we've only just now gotten those built back. So we're just now at 2016, like equilibrium, I'll call it. And then on top of that, we're getting over a million more visitors year over year to the Smokies. So Sevierville, Tennessee is a small rural southeastern town at the end of the day when the tourists leave and like even a metro area does not have the bandwidth and the infrastructure to keep up with that kind of growth so i think we have a supply problem we don't have enough of it i think we're a, a very long way from ever seeing any type of saturation in that market so what's the next big metro city my father-in-law lives in des moines and i've been to the iowa state fair <laughs> is everyone going to want to see the giant hog and life-size butter statues? Is is that the next big metro area? Who knows? I mean, there's been some weird ones like over the past few years that you wouldn't think. Like I never thought growing up in Mississippi that Nashville, because I grew up in North Mississippi, so Nashville's not too far. I never thought Nashville was going to be like the hot place to live. And then now it is. So who knows? So tell us about short-term shop, right? So you've got now all the physicians listening appreciate your expertise and they're going to they're going to want your advice. So what do you do there at the short-term shop? Okay, so the short-term shop, we're a real estate team, we're brokered by EXP, I have to say that or I get in trouble with compliance. We focus exclusively on working with short-term rental investors. We don't take any other type of client. You can come to me and say you want to buy a 10 million dollar primary home and I'm going to tell you sorry, I can't help you. So our offices we have 10. So we are in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. Blue Ridge, Georgia, Gulf Shores, Alabama, Galveston and Crystal Beach, Texas, Broken Bow, Oklahoma. In North Carolina, we are in the high country. So that's Boone, Banner Elk, Sugar Mountain, Beach Mountain, Blowing Rock area. We're about to open up in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And then we have three markets in Florida outside Orlando and Kissimmee. We call it our Disney market. Our biggest market in Florida is the Emerald Coast, which is Destin, Panama City Beach, 30A area. And then just next door to that, the Forgotten Coast which is St. George Island, 
Mexico Beach and Cape Sandblast. So if you choose to use us as your buyer's agents in any of those markets, once you get under contract and through your inspection period, so like we know this is the property that you're going to buy, we teach you everything you need to know about setting up your Airbnb and VRBO listings, all the automation tools. We teach you which ones you need, how to use them and help you get your cleaners and handymen sourced. So by the time you close with us, you're ready to turn the key and you're off to the races making money. None of that costs any extra. It is just a value add for our clients. So those are our 10 markets. We're opening up a few at the beginning of the year. And then we also have the mortgage shop, which I started because we were having to send clients, you know, to 17 different lenders to find all the different products that might work for them. So we brought all of the heavily used short-term rental products in-house under one roof called the mortgage shop. And that is what we do in a nutshell. <laughs> so how do we view these properties? Like if I see something that I like in one of those areas, I fly down, meet one of your agents, take us through or take us through a couple, or is this all done remotely? Are people buying properties sight unseen? Yeah. So years ago, we used to do a lot more in-person showings, but now that things are, that things go so fast, if you want to, if you saw something in Panama city beach tonight that you wanted, it would probably be gone before you get down here on a plane. So we do a lot of videos now, a lot of sight unseen stuff, just because the market doesn't give you time to come look, but a lot of videos. And then a lot of people will like come in person and look during their inspection. So it's not like a mad dash. But yeah. A lot of videos. Most people are buying remote just because things move so fast. And where can people find you online? You can find us at our website, the shorttermshop.com. Just click the schedule consultation button. We are booked out a few weeks because we took off a little bit for Christmas so just be patient on that and we will get you in January. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Love your podcast and I loved your book. Everyone should check both those out as well. Thank you so, so much for buying it. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.